thanks for your support, Jason. I appreciate yours and Carrie's support and your whole network. And it's really been very beneficial to me and, and a whole lot of others. I encourage everyone to use your resources that you have. But thank, thanks, Jason. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1288, 1288. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest will be Richard Ron, chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth, former advisor to President George H.W. Bush, and vice president and chief economist to the United States Chamber of Commerce during the Reagan administration. And I think you'll find his uh, interview to be interesting. But first, we want to move up in time to something closer to present day, and that is Dodd-Frank. You've all heard of this very famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, bill that became law, and it's about 2,200 ultra-confusing pages, I believe. We're going to talk about that today a little bit. I've got Adam here with me. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to have you always on the show. Yeah, Dodd-Frank. So Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank. One thing I can tell you for sure is that Barney Frank had zero, so far as I know, absolutely zero, uh, zero degrees Calvin, absolute zero, (laughs) no banking experience. Yet he passed a very significant banking law. And this law, real estate investors would, would say that it has hampered the market Lenders, home flippers would say it has caused just havoc on the recovery coming out of the Great Recession. There are lots of opinions about it, but let's listen to a clip from a CNBC video. Uh, They've got a great YouTube channel, and um, I've been binging on YouTube lately, Adam. It's Jason's Netflix, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we are in the golden age of self-education. You know what? We really are. And if you're not taking advantage of it, if your kids are not taking advantage of it, they're missing out big time because you can learn so much stuff online. It is absolutely phenomenal. So here's a little info on Dodd-Frank, and we will, of course, chime in with our brilliant commentary. (laughs) And after a series of revisions from Senator Chris Dodd and Representative Barney Frank, yes, that's where the name comes from. President Obama signed it into law in 2010, with almost no Republican support. So what's inside Dodd-Frank, and how is it supposed to prevent something like the financial crisis from happening again? Well, it's a long and complex piece of legislation, we're talking hundreds of pages long, that brought about the most significant changes to financial regulation in the US since the reform that followed the Great Depression. So how is Dodd-Frank supposed to protect you and me? We brought in a few experts to explain. 
Dodd-Frank created a new council made up of bigwigs from the Treasury Secretary, the Fed, the SEC and more. Its goal is to keep banks, hedge funds and companies from becoming too big to fail. It does that by making firms keep more money on hand and they even have the power to break up companies that are a grave threat to financial stability. Agencies such as Moody's and Standard & Poor's evaluate how risky an individual, company, or even the government is to lend to. So, in theory, a bad rating warns investors that these debtors may not pay back their loan, but... Well, how did that work out? <laughs> you know, Moody's, and we did some shows on this following the Great Recession, Moody's was, I mean, I don't know, some would argue they were complicit, if not criminal, in their positive ratings of these companies that just turned out to be a complete mess yeah whenever i was looking this up after i i heard this whenever i watched it beforehand and i thought to myself no i'm pretty sure before the financial crisis they were viewed competently because you know aig is one of the ones that people say you know oh, yes the, huge the one. infamous insurance company yeah. aig yeah so i thought you know would it have been helpful back then and so i looked it up and this is from june 2007 am best company which is one of the ratings agencies affirmed the financial strength ratings of AIG. <laughs> AIG's domestic property and casualty subsidiaries got an A plus rating. Their corporate AIG got a double A, so I'm guessing that's uh, just below the A plus. So mm. I mean <laughs> I mean um, if you're basing your investing upon that, you would have invested. You know, yeah, you would have trusted. Of course. That. And you would have lost your yeah. shirt and then some. <laughs> yeah. The credit agencies to me if they're good, they mean nothing, and if they're bad, they mean something. Well, if, if you're not bad, able to, they mean, they yeah, mean if you're not able to disaster. fool, yeah, if you're not yeah. able to fool them into giving you a good rating, I'm not going to trust you. If you've got a good rating, maybe. You know, this really goes along with let's call it the award and recognition industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything we see practically nowadays is fake, fake, fake. I remember meeting a guy in Young Entrepreneurs Organization, now called Entrepreneurs Organization. Years ago, we were at one of their, they called them universities, one of their big conferences uh, overseas. I think this was probably the, the one in Japan, if I recall correctly, or maybe it was Morocco. I'm not, I'm not sure which one it was. Anyway, I was talking to this guy. We were having a drink, normal conversation, group of entrepreneurs, a couple hundred of them. So what does your company do? And he says... We basically help people get the J.D. Powers Award. So essentially what you do is you go into this kind of a program. You hire an expensive consultant, and I guess that's what, what he was, and you basically learn how to get the J.D. Powers Award. Now, <laughs> you know, this goes along with all of these fake awards, right? It goes, and I'm not saying J.D. Powers is totally fake. You know, none of these things are completely fake, right? But they are sort of purchased, if you will. And same with Hollywood. Look at the Academy Awards. I mean, I remember when Clint Eastwood won, I think he won, what, Best Director, right? For uh, Unforgiven, that movie. And most people said, the movie just wasn't that good, but they thought it was a political thing because Clint Eastwood had been around a long time and he was getting old. Lifetime right? achievement. Yeah. You know, so these various conferences I go to, there's sometimes there's an award ceremony and it's just bogus. It's just BS. Honestly, a lot of them are just they're just bullshit. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, I'm going to say it. You know, these articles you see in magazines, all of this stuff, this media, it's paid for. It's not really earned media a lot of times. Yeah. You know, it's just bought. It's all some degree of advertorial, right? Even if it doesn't say advertorial at the top of the, the page or the website or wherever you're seeing it, it's purchased a lot of the times in some way or another. Yeah, if you look at Moody's said that Lehman Brothers had an A2 rating, which is one of the top ones, five days before it filed for bankruptcy. They actually put it on review five days before, so they said, eh, we might be wrong. But if you had already purchased, five days was not enough time. Yeah, yeah, boy, uh, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Imagine how many people, their lives were completely ruined when Lehman went under. I mean, what you got to realize is we live in this super symbolic world where almost everything is just a scam. It's it's just a hype, hype, hype. All these trade magazines in our industry where you see people on the cover, those covers are paid for. I remember one was hitting me up years ago to be on the cover. It's, how much is it? It, You know, it's just a little trade magazine, $3,600. And I said, I'm not paying for that. Put me on the cover if you think I, you know, deserve to be on the cover. But I'm, I'm not writing you a check to be on the cover of your magazine. I just refuse to do it. And, you know, it's not like I'm so incredibly like I'm some angel or something. I'm, I'm not, okay? I'm just saying it's just ridiculous. It's fake. It's all just fake. It's fake news. Yeah. So, yeah. It's and this is one of those things, you know, you might be wondering why we're harping on credit agencies in a real estate investing show. But if you're investing in these pooled assets and the companies that run these things, and, you know, commandment number three, maintain control. Thou shalt maintain control. Even if you're investing in a company who is being reported by a credit agency and they tell you it's good, you just never know. Well, and it's not even that, Adam. It's not that it's just the company itself. It's all of the company's affairs that you're affected by. You know, it's like throwing a, a pebble into a pond, right? There's this processional effect of all of its dealings. I mean, look at what Lehman and AIG did to the world. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Except so, in, in the Great Recession, it was dropping a boulder into a lake. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Or a, a meteor yeah. <laughs> coming 25,000 miles an hour, you know. So Dodd Frank was ostensibly designed to prevent this from happening again, but it had all sorts of unintended consequences, or maybe they're intended, I don't know, uh, where investors who were doing legitimate things, real estate investors, they were out doing foreclosure rescue kind of work. All that really means is that they were soliciting homeowners who were in or on the verge of foreclosure to try and buy their properties from them or loan them money. And Dodd-Frank restricted these kinds of activities. It restricted flipping activities. It restricted the structure and the type of financing you could do. So yes, fewer people ended up with these, what they believe to be bad loans, but also fewer people got loans at all. Fewer properties were rehabbed. Fewer people were rescued. It's like looking at a, in the old days, remember, you know, if any of you took photography class like I did in the old days where you developed film. Yeah, I know. Millennials, Gen Zers, you don't know what that is. Film was this thing that you put in a camera and it was, you know, you, you take it out and in a dark room and the chemicals would make it come to life. <laughs> okay, basically. And you develop the film and you had a negative 
and you put an enlarger, you put the negative into the enlarger and it shined light through the negative onto the photo paper. And the negative was the opposite of what was on the, what you'd see on the photo, right? It was the opposite image of that. So everything that was dark was light, everything was light was dark, it was opposite. And that's really like what I talk about, how you can't hear the dogs that don't bark. And that's what happens with all of this stuff. Everyone evaluates, oh, Dodd-Frank did all this good stuff, but they never evaluate what stuff didn't happen that might have otherwise happened and been good for everybody. Nobody evaluates that because you can't hear the dogs that don't bark. Let's go back to the video. So the Fed's emergency loans during the financial crisis raised a lot of eyebrows, which is why Dodd-Frank gave the government new power to audit these loans. Now the government has authority to audit the Fed again in the future, and all emergency loans must be approved by the Treasury. Okay, there are many types of derivatives. One did the government ever audit the Fed? I, I, did she misspeak? Uh, uh, just about auditing the loans. Yeah. Which, they, with they, the they amount of loans. The Fed. No one, no one. Ron Paul, who spoke at our Meet the Masters conference a year and a half ago, he was behind the movement to audit the Fed. And Ron Paul was so right about that. But nobody's ever audited the Fed. Talk about auditing the loans. If you think they can you know, reliably audit all of the loans that are done by these banks and agencies every day? Come on. It's impossible. It's totally impossible. Listen, I'll take you back to a prior recession, the one that happened with, remember the name, some of you, uh, Gen Xers, baby boomers, you'll remember this, millennials and Gen Y, certainly not. But Charles Keating, Lincoln Savings and Loan, I remember when that happened. And one of the issues with that is that the government was sending in auditors to banks and the uh, concept of the adjustable rate loan, it wasn't new at that point, but it was becoming much more complex in the way it worked and with the possibility of negative amortization and uh, all these different caps and so forth. And they sent auditors into these SNLs, these savings and loans, like Lincoln Savings and Loans, to audit these lending institutions, and the auditors couldn't figure it out. It was just too complex what they were doing. Remember, the criminals and the private sector, which are one and the same usually, but I don't know, there are government criminals, public sector and private sector criminals, just like any part of the economy, public and private sector, right? And they're always ahead, and the regulators are always following them. The law enforcement always follows, except in the movie Minority Report, where they had the pre-crime division, but we don't have that yet. But hey, we're getting there. Yeah, you have to look at it as you have regular people coming in to look at professionals' spreadsheets. And the only right. way they can fully understand it is to have the professional explain it to them. And they're not going to explain it to them and say, and this is all illegal. And they explain it to them and say, by the way, you know, have you ever considered a job in the private sector? Maybe we should hire you. <laughs> and then suddenly the auditor becomes very enamored of the company that's offering three times the pay package that the government pays them, right? So it's, yeah, it's a whole ridiculous fake news world we live in, fake world, fake awards, fake magazine covers, fake, fake ratings agencies, yeah, uh, fake, fake reviews on podcasts. I mean, some of my competitors with their fake reviews. Oh, my God, it's just a ridiculous world, you know. Here, here we go keep the economy stable and ones that did the complete opposite. One of the more controversial of these is the credit default swap. 
Here's how it works. Say you're giving a company a big loan. It's a great deal to get all that money back. But what happens if the company goes bankrupt? Well, that's where the credit default swap comes in. It's your insurance. But before Dodd-Frank, swaps weren't regulated and the sellers of credit... So that's a key thing. The CDS, the credit default swap, that was something nobody understood. In fact, I think I remember seeing a 60 Minutes episode while we were in, but after the beginning of the Great Recession, as we were in the very bad times, and they were explaining credit default swaps. And I think they explained it really well. They said it was basically a form of insurance, and it was like fake insurance. Because to give insurance, an insurance company that's a regular, regulated, legitimate insurance company, the government requires them to have Guess what? Reserves. They have to have a certain reserve ratio, just like a bank does, so that they can pay claims. Imagine that. But these companies offering CDSs, they didn't have reserve requirements like that. They could do these swaps. And when they did them, AIG just said, oh, sorry, we can't pay the, in essence, the claims. So the government needs to bail us out. There you go. Credit default swaps didn't actually have enough money to pay out if the worst happened. Now, thanks to Dodd-Frank, these insurance-like products are more heavily supervised. So when you deposit your money into a bank, you expect for it to be kept safe and sound. But before Dodd-Frank... Smashing the piggy bank. Banks could use your money to trade for their own personal gain. Now they have to get out of that business unless you specifically ask them to trade on your behalf. So do all these... We need to do some more, and we've discussed this on prior episodes, but we need to discuss the Glass-Steagall Act. That was the other big one that changed everything, that and Dodd-Frank. New rules mean we'll never see something like the financial crisis again. The jury's still out on that one. Supporters of the bill say it has improved regulation and has made the US financial systems more stable. But critics see Dodd-Frank as the Obamacare for the economy and argue it leaves Americans with fewer choices, higher costs and less freedom. And that is true. So what does the future hold for an act which regulators, even after five years, have only completed two-thirds of? Dodd-Frank was never popular with the Republicans, so it's likely with a Republican president and Congress, some, if not all, could be pulled, leaving its future an uncertain one. All right, so check out that video. It's on the CNBC channel. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You know, it really explains it pretty well. They do a good job at that. Adam, we are selling a lot of those new properties, new construction properties in Atlanta. Uh, So congratulations to all the listeners who have purchased those. And you've got another one you wanted to talk about before we get to our guest, right? Yes, we had one come up in uh, Merrillville, Indiana, and it's a three bedroom, one bath, and it's 1,450 square feet. Price point is $136,900. So, so less than 100 bucks a square foot, yep, probably below the cost of construction, yeah. And it rents for $1,395, so over that 1% mark. And we must say that is a projected rent, and all of these numbers are projections on the performance. Yes. It may be rented already, but we would still say projected because, hey, the tenant might stop paying three months after you buy it. And then that did not come true. So, you know, uh, like uh, the only thing guaranteed is death and taxes, obviously. But uh, (laughs) yeah, go ahead. And so looking at 25% down with four and three quarter interest rate, which is 
very very feasible in today's market you're looking at a cash flow of $222 a month. That's so fantastic. Good stuff. Pretty good. And good that's stuff. with a vacancy rate of 8%, maintenance percentage of 8%. One of the things I'm really excited about is that at this upcoming Profits in Paradise event, we're going to do property tours. You can actually tour properties at this event. We've never done that before at this type of event. Of course, we've had property tours, but not with a two-day conference included. So it's going to be just a jam-packed weekend. That property tour will be on Friday, and we might add a second property tour, possibly for Sunday evening. We're working on that. Adam, any more news from our other investment counselors on that one? Uh, I have not heard anything okay. clarifying. So stay tuned it's in the works. In the works. Yeah. yeah. So stay tuned for uh, more information, possibly on a second property tour at our Orlando Profits in Paradise event. Go to jasonhartmanlive.com, jasonhartmanlive.com to check that out and get your tickets. Oh, one last thing before we get to our guest. We are going to uh, talk about, or I'm going to talk about, a really, really exciting vehicle that is actually better than my favorite vehicle, the 1031 Tax Deferred Exchange. And it's certainly better than the highly overrated and highly overhyped Opportunity Zone. Uh, so I think you'll really like this. It's a way that instead of doing a 1031 tax deferred exchange, you can literally sell your appreciated properties or your properties that even if they haven't appreciated, if you've been taking depreciation against them and you would have recapture, you can avoid most of that recapture and it's complicated. So we're going to have a whole discussion about this at Profits in Paradise. And you can buy new properties or not buy properties at all. You can invest in something else if you wish, just like a self-directed IRA. But if you buy properties, guess what? Here's the magic, magic, incredible thing. You start the depreciation clock over at the top, which is incredible, incredible. Because here's what happens. When you do 1031 exchanges over the years, and this last one I did, I've done a few of them into this last apartment complex I just sold. I sold it for $5 million, purchased it with a client of ours, and uh, we sold that one. We got $5 bucks even for it, which was pretty good because we only purchased it for, I think, like $2.7 We had some fix-up cost in there. It's not quite as good as it might sound, but it was pretty darn good. It was a good deal. I thought I got to do a 1031 exchange, and I've, I've identified properties. I've entered into the exchange. You know, I'm going to try and do the exchange, but my backup plan is this awesome vehicle. I'm going to tell you about it, Profits in Paradise. If I don't complete the exchange or if I only complete part of the exchange, guess what? On the properties that I buy out of this uh, vehicle, I can start the depreciation clock at the top. I don't have to carry out over that depreciation that I was all, I've already run a lot of it by doing several exchanges before this. So very exciting. More to come on that. JasonHartmanLive.com. Adam, let's get to our guest. Do it. It's my pleasure to welcome Richard Ron. He is chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth, former economic advisor to President George H.W. Bush, and vice president and chief economist of the United States Chamber of Commerce during the Reagan administration. Richard, welcome. How are you? I'm just fine. It's good to have you. And where are you located? I'm in Great Falls, Virginia now. 
Fantastic. Well, you are a, a fan of cryptocurrencies and you know, I guess it's almost um, a little bit surprising, uh, maybe not, I don't know, I'm a little surprised, to see someone who's, you know, worked in government and around government for so long and be a fan of digital money, but you were working on it long before we ever heard of Bitcoin, right? Yes. Back in 1976, the great uh, Nobel Prize winner, Austrian economist, F.A. Hayek, wrote a book called Denationalization of Money. And at the time, I was fascinated by that book because he laid out how there was no reason for money to be produced by government. In fact, historically, it had been private. And uh, it had got me to thinking at that point. I was also an advisor to uh, the New York Mercantile Exchange, a big commodity exchange. And we were looking around for new things to trade. And so I had started fiddling around with the idea of currency baskets or commodity baskets based on a lot of Hayek's work. There was a lot of problems back then uh, doing it from a technical standpoint. And so 20 years ago, I wrote a book uh, called The End of Money and a Struggle for Financial Privacy of How a Digital Money Could Operate. And that was before Bitcoin and the advent of the blockchain, which made a lot of this possible. But my real fascination and concern is the idea of private non-government monies but, of course, in the modern world, they would all be digital and encrypted. And um, that's how I, how I got where I am. Well, that's quite interesting. You know, Richard, I can see, and uh, I'm a fan of F.A. Hayek, of course, but I can see how uh, there isn't a need for governments to run the currency. But from a government's perspective, they wouldn't want to give up that control, would they? And from a central banker's perspective, they wouldn't want to give up that control. I mean, that's in essence their biggest product. I mean, I would argue that the biggest product of any government is its currency. Feel free to take issue with that, but um, why would a government want to give up control uh, of these things? Right, and they don't want to give up control. But the idea of central banks is something relatively new in human history. Uh, The first one was in Sweden in the 1600s, but they didn't really catch on until the late 1800s, and it wasn't until the 1880s that the Bank of England became actually part of the government. Before that, it was private. We did not have a central bank in the United States until the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, which set up the Fed in 1914. And um, countries got along perfectly well without central banks. And central banks, of course, gave a huge amount of power to people in government, And as you know, people in government love power more than anything. But the central banks have had a very poor track record. Back when we were on the gold standard, so the world was on a gold standard really from 1870s till 1914. It was one of the most prosperous eras ever in the world. It was the first era of globalization. You didn't have periods of rapid inflation, quick recessions. They used to call them panics, but they usually only lasted a few months. And so you had actually a more stable world. And then once you had central banks, which took over from the gold center, it was a period of time where you still had gold. But let's say the last 30 years, 40 years, where you've had just strictly fiat currencies without a specific backing, that has not been particularly well for the world monetary order. I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I'm just saying, what would be a government's motivation to ever allow this? In fact, one of the arguments I've made many times is as much as I would love to be wrong about cryptocurrencies, but I, I don't think I'm going to be, the powers that be 
just aren't going to let them take over in any real way, I, I don't think. I, again, I'd love to be wrong about it, but why would they? You know, why wouldn't they just ultimately, if cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, etc., got too powerful, if they got too much of a foothold, they might just make them illegal or do something to make it very difficult to trade. Maybe there'll be a, a crisis of some sort, a fraud. Maybe they'll engineer it, right? <laughs> you know. Here in the U.S., one little sneaky thing they do is requiring you, if you trade Bitcoin, every time you make a purchase or sale, you're supposed to record it all as a capital gain or capital loss. And so, of course, the record-keeping requirements here are mind-boggling complex. That's just one little thing they do. And there's no revenue gain to government with that because it's a zero-sum game. But that's just the kind of harassment that they engage in. And so you've got the... You know, the old classic battle between those who want freedom and uh, those in government who try to, to put the foot on freedom. And this struggle will go on. But I think ultimately governments will lose because the advances in encryption and with the Internet and things like the blockchain make it increasingly difficult and very costly for government to go after everybody. My view is what will happen is there will be many different types of what we broadly refer to as cryptocurrencies. I'm one who believes they need to be backed by something real rather than just a computer algorithm in the way that Bitcoin is. But there's people trying to do uh, crypto gold, crypto silver, other precious metals and so forth. I've got a company where we're doing aluminum. But these experiments will take place. They'll serve certain markets and people increasingly find their ways around government currencies. Now, if you start to have rapid inflation again, in the way we had in the late 1970s, the movement towards cryptocurrencies will really be accelerated. The thing is holding it back now is the fact that we have virtually no inflation, right. but that's not a permanent condition. Yeah, I agree. But the movement, the people may want it, but the governments don't want it, right? So, you know, and the central bankers don't want it. If a cryptocurrency took over, would the Fed just close and say, oh, well, I guess you don't need us anymore. Bye. <laughs> Eventually, that could happen. If we take a look at the people can override the will of government. Let's just take something like marijuana, which has been illegal all through my lifetime, but increasing numbers of people smoked marijuana. And uh, finally, the government has been giving in sort of state by state. And we can pick up other things like that, where the government they would love to control, and they'll try to, but they'll lose the battle. That's the thing that really protects our Second Amendment, is the fact that um, it's going to be very hard for government ever to get everybody's guns. Yeah. If we were a society which didn't have wide gun ownership, then government could easily do it. But the fact is, since we've got more guns than people, the idea of government going in and taking everybody's guns is it's not realistic. Right, but the government has much more powerful things than the firearms we can own, obviously. I don't know. I mean, conceptually, I agree with you, but from a practical point of view, if the government wants to get them, they'll get them. The government's a pretty strong adversary. <laughs> yeah, they can target anybody, and they can target every one of us because there's something like more than 4,000 federal felonies, so 
as most people can't go a week without committing a couple of felonies. I had the author of uh, three felonies a day on the show. I mean, everybody's just breaking the law all the time now. Every single person listening is breaking laws they don't even know exist. It's absolutely ridiculous. So the government can always target anybody. But the government trying to target everybody and the cost of doing this. Let's say with a cryptocurrency, let's say you're in some foreign country and we decide to trade whatever by some cryptocurrency, whether it be Bitcoin or digital gold or whatever. And if you're doing it encrypted, peer to peer, if the government focuses on either one of us, they eventually could find this. But the cost of doing this for so many transactions becomes overwhelming. And um, it's a battle, I think. I mean, I tend to be an optimist. I think it's a battle that governments will ultimately lose. And I sure hope they do. Yeah. There's no reason for them to have monopoly on money because like every other monopoly, they've screwed it up. And they don't need to have a, a monopoly on money and taxation at the same time because they can simply tax everybody by inflating the currency. That's a tax. It's totally interesting how the IRS and the Federal Reserve came about right around the same time, <laughs> you know, uh, within about a year of each other. To have both, it's like this double checkmate. You, you know, you can have one or the other. You can have a taxing agency and tell people to pay their share, or you can have the currency and you can inflate away the value of it. But in our case, since 1913 or so, they can do both. Yep. Simultaneously. Simultaneously, right? Okay, so diving into the cryptocurrency side of things and the digital money side of things, who do you think will be the winner in this game? Will it be the, the sort of the original Bitcoin or will it be one of the others? What are your thoughts about the huge landscape of digital money out there? Well, Bitcoin had the advantage of being first and grabbing market share. But since it's basically based on a computer algorithm, even though it's proved to be unbreakable, I just become a, a bit of a skeptic that that can hold up over the long run. And I am one who believes that uh, the money should be anchored in something real, but it can be totally digital and encrypted. And again, any metal, any precious metal, any commercial metal will do, or even you could do various agriculturals. I mean, Hayek, going back to his book in 76, thought there'd be commodity baskets, which would be the uh, basis. And it could be. And there's a lot of experiments taking place now. There's probably several thousand people out there, like I am, experimenting with various things. And the markets will ultimately determine. People forget that 100 years ago, at the beginning of the automobile age, we had more than 2,000 different makers of automobiles in the U.S. Yep. It hadn't been sorted out whether we were going to have steam-driven automobiles or electric or diesel or uh, gasoline engines or whatever. And all these things got sorted out by the market, and uh, then you had went down to an oligopoly. The same thing will eventually happen probably with digital monies. People will try lots of different things, and eventually certain things will show to be better than others. And there's no reason why you can't have specialized currencies for certain types of transactions which may not be applicable to others. Why is it that you say Bitcoin won't work because of the algorithm because it's you know it's, it's basically a bunch of code what's the problem with that is it the slow processing time as so many people use it or, or or what because the way it's structured the processing time will increase in the cost of that but even though it looks unbreakable now something will happen i have no idea what but somebody will find a way to mess it up mm -hmm. because they 
with everything. And because there's nothing, there's no there there. And again, I'm old fashioned. I'd like to be able to hold my money. And even though you say, well, you're doing aluminum, you can't hold much in terms of value in your hand, but we can store it around the world and it serves as a perfectly fine store of value. Again, a computer algorithm. Well, let's say you had one of these global cyber attacks by North Korea or somebody where it shuts down the electrical grids every place. Then Bitcoin is dead for a while until mm-hmm. things reestablish. But if you have something real, you may not be in a transaction for some period of time, but the value is still there. Yeah. Tell us a, l- a little bit about your uh, career, if you would, and um, what it was like to work uh, in the Reagan administration or, well, for the Chamber of Commerce in the Reagan administration and uh, then with George H.W. Bush. Well, I started off as a professor and then I ran American Council for Capital Formation and um, I got involved with the original supply side group, Art Laffer and some of his colleagues back in the late 70s. And um, Ronald Reagan used to say, well, Unlike the rest of us, he didn't have to unlearn the economics he learned because he learned his economics. He had a degree in economics before Keynes wrote his book. So he had it right from the beginning. But we had a group of people who worked on the tax policy side, very bright, very innovative. And it was exciting times because, you know, we were shifting the whole economic policymaking during the 80s and early 90s, where Reagan really was interested in economics and understood it and um, could engage in a substantive discussion. The first George Bush quickly learned, nice man, smart man, but he didn't really care too much about economics. He wanted his advisors just to come up with conclusions. He wasn't interested in that much. In, in the detail. Yeah. And to contrast that with his predecessor, Reagan, so Reagan was quite interested, right? He had Arthur Laffer, and you know he was very into it, right? Yeah, he clearly understood it all and mm-hmm. was... That was an interest. George Bush, his interest was more in foreign policy and some other things. Right. And he just plain wasn't interested to any particular depth on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's one reason he got off track, because we designed the flexible freeze and no tax increases, which he ran on in 88. Right. But he quickly banned it in 89, yep. at uh, which point I said, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it would work. And, of course, it didn't. We went into the recession, needlessly. But... Those things are, you live and learn. Yep, definitely, definitely. And after that, I basically became much more entrepreneurial, built some businesses, and I had gotten interested in the economic transition in Eastern Europe. I had some experience working in the communist countries. I ended up chairing the Bulgarian transition team and also serving as an advisor to Gaidar, who was the first non-communist prime minister in Russia. And those were very fascinating years, talking about the... Uh, starting really 1990 through 94 or 5. And um, the fact that you could go in there and have some influence on a total economic transformation of a country was a very exciting time for economists. And we built a number of joint ventures during that time. I had brought in some U.S. businessmen because from my years at the chamber, I knew a number of CEOs. And so we created some joint ventures and and all that was very interesting. And uh, I did that for uh, about 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, 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 o